Welcome to the Raising Boys and Girls podcast. I'm Sissy Goff. I'm David Thomas. And I'm Melissa Trevathan. And we're so glad you've set aside a few minutes to spend with us today. In each episode of this podcast, we'll share some of what we're learning in the work we do with kids and families on a daily basis at Daystar Counseling in Nashville, Tennessee. Our goal is to help you care for the kids in your life with a little more understanding, a little more practical help, and a whole lot of hope. So pull up a chair and join us on this journey from our little yellow house to yours. The Raising Boys and Girls podcast is brought to you in partnership with Minnow. Minnow provides meaningful screen time and shared experiences for families to help you grow in your faith together. Check them out at podcast.gominnow.com. That's podcast.gominnow.com. Jessica Leahy is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Can Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Over 20 years, Jess has taught every grade from 6 to 12 in public and private schools and spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents in Vermont. She serves as a prevention and recovery coach. She also writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Washington Post, The Atlantic, is a book critic for Air Mail, and her bi-weekly column, The Parent-Teacher Conference, which ran for three years at the New York Times. Jessica lives in Vermont with her husband, two sons, and a lot of dogs. You may want to buckle up for this conversation because it is full of staggering statistics and sobering insights, but we love Jessica's heart to help parents do the hard work that will support kids to hopefully prevent addiction. Jessica, first of all, we are so grateful to have you on this podcast. Yes, and we are. We were just talking a little earlier about an amazing intersection with a mutual friend who was talking about how incredible you are. And I just finished reading your book, The Addiction Inoculation, which I wish we were in the same room so you could see how marked up it is. <laughs> and then I nextly want to encourage you to watch your Amazon numbers because I talk about it all the time. And I think your Tennessee <laughs> sales are through the roof. And just so grateful for your work and what you've written. Yes, we are. Thank you. Speaking of Tennessee, I always like to look up the use numbers and the sort of risk survey numbers whenever I go to a particular place. And I was in eastern Tennessee recently, and I was really interested to see that in Tennessee as a whole, your average age of initiation for alcohol is 13.7, but your average age of initiation for misusing prescription drugs is 13.5. Wow. Yeah. And I also did not realize, and this was new to me, that at any given time, Tennessee has 800 methamphetamine labs running. Wow. 800 in the state of Tennessee. That is staggering. Yes, it is. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yes, it is. Makes us even more grateful for the work that you're doing and for this book in particular. And we would love for you to talk about what made you decide to write it, why you wrote it, and what you're really hoping parents can gain from it. So I got sober in 2013, on June 7th, 2013. So that means this June, if I make it there, you know, every day I'm doing my best, it'll be nine years. And about the time I got sober, I realized, okay, well, I'm the child of an alcoholic and my parent is a child of an alcoholic and so on and so on and so on. And ditto with the other side of our family. My husband's family has addiction as well. 
you know, I looked at my kids and I'm like, okay, well, uh, how do I make this stop with me? And when you go and look at all of the experts online, they say substance use is a preventable public health issue. And that word preventable was just this big, huge, (laughs) not very well described word. There are great sources out there that parrot that information, which is great because it's true, but I needed specifics. As a writer, I like to live in the gray areas. There's a chapter in the book about peers. Sort of the logic that everyone talks about is that if your kids' friends use drugs and alcohol, your kids are more likely to use drugs and alcohol. But that just sounded really black and white to me. So I really want to dive into that information a little bit more deeply and, and see what that means. So I just kind of, for myself anyway, for my own kids, needed to know what works and what doesn't. And then at the same time, I was working in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. I was teaching there for five years. And I was just really curious, you know, how did these kids end up here? What could we have done differently? What could schools have done differently? What could parents have done differently? What are the deep root causes there? As most of my work tends to be, I come at it from the parent and the teacher sort of angle, wanting to understand just more deeply. And then I have, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the coolest job ever, which is to translate all that research for people who don't want to dive into all that research. So it's really, really fun. Mm. I love doing this stuff. And while I'm really proud of my first book, The Gift of Failure, this book, The Addiction Inoculation, really was sort of the book that's made all of the yucky stuff worth it. Mm. My own substance use, growing up in a home with substance use, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. So A lot of redemption that a lot of us have benefited from, from your story. I find every single time I'm on stage or in an interview and I talk about my own recovery, inevitably someone emails me either about someone they're concerned about or themselves or Mm. whatever. And that's a part of the service. You know, I consider a big part of my sobriety and recovery about doing service for other people who need to find sobriety and recovery. And so that gets to be a part of my service as well. Mm. We have to comment at this point in our conversation. Listeners won't know this because they can't see you, but we can, that we're going to add to the list of reasons that we like you, that you are doing this interview with an adorable dog in your lap yes. right now, which is well, just so making our day. He's a puppy. He's only five months old. And I have to say, if you hear some weird noises, it's him snoring. <laughs> I host a podcast called Hashtag Am Writing, and our podcast listeners have gotten used to it. Our producer has learned sometimes you just got to keep the snores in because the listeners <laughs> seem to like it. So, yeah, snoring. Yeah. Well, you're making us feel more at home. Yes, People are. who love dogs and use dogs in our practice. This is just all good. This season of our podcast is based on a book that Sissy and our good friend and boss, Melissa, wrote called Modern Parents, Vintage Values. And we've been Mm -hmm. talking about a number of modern challenges. You included some important data from the Stress of America report published by the American Psychological Association. And Mm -hmm. it identified that the most stressed out people in this country are adolescents between the ages of 15 and 21. Stress is... One of the more common reasons we hear teenagers report why they use substances to Mm -hmm. try to manage or, you know, offload stress. Will you talk about what the data tells us on some of the most common reasons that teenagers use? Yes, there are categories of reasons, but, you know, kids are complicated creatures, wonderfully complicated creatures. I can tell you that at any given time in my rehab classroom, I usually had some kids who either 
not well treated or untreated for learning issues. And mm. there are a couple things going on there. For kids whose brains just feel out of control, you know, a hit of weed or taking someone else's Adderall can help. And I think the thing we don't talk about very often and we need to talk about more is that a lot of drugs and alcohol work great in the short term. They offer a really good short-term answer for kids who don't have anywhere else to turn. And saying anything other than that, like, you know, when we tell kids drugs are just bad, they know we're lying. I mean, why on earth would people take drugs if they were just bad? So anyway, the ADHD and ADD kids, there was almost always a kid there taking weed. There were always kids in the classroom with sexual and physical trauma. And as we well know, the pain receptors, whether emotional or physical, all of that stuff feeds into why people would take pain relievers like opiates for their emotional trauma. Unresolved academic failure, which can also tie into the whole undiagnosed learning issues thing. We know that where risk for substance use is concerned, that academic failure, social ostracism, aggression between children, undiagnosed learning issues, all of these things are risk factors for substance use disorder. Mm. And then a lot of people like to talk about the fact that adolescents are really drawn to risk, which isn't really true. They're drawn to novelty, which often, you know, has risk involved, which is great because that's the role of adolescents. They're supposed to be drawn to new things so that they can become more competent. And I think it's also important for people to understand that in adolescence, kids have lower baseline levels of dopamine than they did when they were littler and when they're going to be big. So there's this feeling of you're drawn to novelty. You feel most alive when novelty happens. If you conquer something that is new to you, you get a feeling of mastery and self-efficacy, which boosts dopamine. And that lower baseline level of dopamine just makes kids feel blah. <laughs> and, you know, I don't like feeling blah, and I'm going to do whatever I can do to eradicate that feeling. And whether that's because I take some booze or some weed or because I get out there and master something out there in the world, there are lots of ways to achieve that. And it's our job as parents to help kids in adolescence when they're particularly susceptible to the blahs and needing just to feel something and feeling uncertain about themselves and dealing with unresolved trauma or adverse childhood experiences or whatever that is. It's our job to sort of help them get early intervention for that and to push them towards positive risk and ways to feel self-efficacy and competence so that we can help them boost their dopamine naturally. Yes. Right. I already am so grateful for so many things that you're saying. And I feel like, I don't know if you feel this way, David, but I have been having a lot of conversations lately with parents, with kids with learning hurdles who are talking about the potential of needing them to get on some type of medication. And, and it seems there is a theory out there that if they do, that that is some kind of gateway drug. And so they don't medicate their children for fear that it will lead to drugs rather than realizing that often being medicated and handling it the appropriate healthy way is going to be more preventative really in the long run. Yeah, I'd actually have to look up the citation for this, but the most recent study I read on this was that effective medication for ADHD. When kids are being medicated properly and with a drug that's working for them, that actually is preventative in terms of substance use disorder later on down the road. But it's when kids are undiagnosed or not well medicated that it actually increased their risk of substance use disorder. So getting on top of these things early, not only because some of these problems tend to get all tangled up. I mean, if you have a kid who is aggressive towards another kid, 
Yeah, they're more likely to be socially ostracized. And if they're socially ostracized, they're more likely to have some academic failure. So let's get on top of these things early before they get all complicated and tangled up so that we can actually get to the root of the problem, Mm. which I know, I believe me, I know saying early intervention is key. And yet so many kids lack access to, you know, what they need in order to be intervened on, whether that's therapy which is why I'm constantly talking up, you know, the allies, mm. the primary health care providers, the school counselors, the school nurses, that kind of thing. But I do understand that this is a societal and it's often a socioeconomic hurdle as well. Yes, it is. One of our favorite things you do in the book is to take overwhelming amounts of research around substance abuse and make it manageable for parents. You talk about the kids who are most vulnerable, what happens when kids begin experimenting at different age, and how it impacts brain development. For years in our practice, we've heard kids and parents talk about the belief that letting kids try a drink (laughs) at home— I know this is making some of you parents panic, but letting kids try a drink at home will prevent them from engaging in irresponsible drinking later. You dispel this myth in such a great way. Will you speak to that and talk about what the research tells us on this? So there's a couple different ways to look at this. I hear the whole, yeah, I want my kids to be like those European kids and learn moderation (laughs) and blah, 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 blah. Okay, so there are a couple of problems with this. From a statistical point of view, we know that the kids of parents that have a clear and consistent message of no, not until it is legal for you, which for me just means not until your brain is done developing, those kids have much lower levels of substance use disorder. And I'm married to a statistician, and I'm the parent to a statistician, and (laughs) there's a lot of confounders in there, yes, and we have to deal with that. But Okay, given that, and alternately, kids of permissive parents, parents who let kids have sips, who say, oh, well, they're just going to do it anyway, so I'll have the keg party and take all the keys, those kids have higher levels of substance use disorder. Okay, so that's just the statistics. Mm -hmm. The other problem is, let's look at some of the other problems with some of those suppositions. One of them is the Europeans have it all figured out, and if their kids have their own glasses of wine or whatever, then somehow they learn not to freak out and go crazy when alcohol becomes available. The problem problem is, is that for a certain portion of the population that I'm part of, I can't learn moderation. Mm -hmm. It's not like a, if my parents had just taught me moderation better, I would be better at moderating my drinking. I can't learn moderation. Mm -hmm. The other problem is that the European Union as a whole, according to the World Health Organization, has the highest levels of alcohol consumption in the entire world. So if I were going to model my parenting after any region of the world... (laughs) In terms of drinking, it would not be the European Union. (laughs) People like to get really upset about that. And because of the number of people who get angry with me about that, I have to break down the data, look at all the different countries, blah, blah, blah. And yes, there are some countries that have lower levels of alcohol consumption. Interestingly, it looks like those countries, mostly in Southern Europe, have lower levels of alcohol consumption, mostly because of a cultural taboo against being fall down drunk in the streets. So that speaks to the power of community norms and the power that we have to control those things and to dictate how much people drink in a given community. 
my older kid was raised under those kinds of rules, a more permissive sort of, I thought the same thing, that if my kid went off to college never having tried alcohol, they would just be in big trouble. And the data just does not bear that out. And so my now 18-year-old feels that the world is very unfair and he's being raised (laughs) under very different rules. But he also knows what I know because I tell him we have a lot of conversations around information not just guesses and myths. We have a lot of conversations about information. And so he knows I'm just doing the best I can do with the data I have. And if I were to do anything else, either because I want to be the cool parent or because I'm scared that I'm not doing what I know from the data to be best for him, Mm -hmm. given that he was born with a genetic predisposition for substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm just doing the best I can and making sure that he knows that I'm doing the best I can and that I expect no more or no less from him. It's great. Just my all-time favorite thing about this book. Like, let's just not parent around myths or ideas. Let's (laughs) parent around the accurate information. The really cool thing when it comes to this whole delay, delay, delay thing that you were talking about, which is what we know from the data is that the younger a kid is when they first try drugs or alcohol, the higher their lifelong risk is for substance use disorder. So for example, if an eighth grader has a drink for the first time, his lifelong risk of having substance use disorder is around 50%. But if we can get them up until they're 18 would be nice, but 21 would be even better because their brains aren't done developing until the early to mid-20s, then we can get that rate down to somewhere around 10%, which is what it is in the general population. So Mm. 50% versus 10% is massive. And the nice thing about a lot of what I recommend in the addiction inoculation that's prevention-oriented isn't just prevention-oriented. Because as far as I'm concerned, I have kids with elevated risk. I can't guarantee that any of this will work that I'm trying because there's no guarantees in statistics. But I do know that if getting to the place where you know you need help is like a 100-piece puzzle, and I went into this with very few pieces in place when I first started drinking, and it took me you know, until my early 40s to get to that 100th piece, which was my dad who said, I know what an alcoholic looks like, and you're an alcoholic and you need help. A lot of this prevention are those early pieces. So let's say my kids do go on to develop alcohol use disorder, then they'll have, you know, maybe 50 pieces in place or maybe 70 pieces in place. I don't know. But even if they do end up having an issue, maybe they'll get to the place where they know they need help quicker than I did. Mm. It's great. Sissy, Melissa, and I love to link arms with other like-minded friends who are working to strengthen families. That's why we are so thrilled to be partnering with Minnow to bring you the Raising Boys and Girls podcast. Minnow is a streaming service designed just for kids, but it's so much more than that. Minnow not only provides meaningful screen time, but also shared experiences through devotionals and discussion guides for families to help you grow in life and faith together. Check them out at podcast.gominnow.com. That's podcast.gominnow.com. Okay, as we record this, it is officially prom season. Uh (laughs) This time of year, and I am having conversations every day, sometimes on the hour, with parents who are fearful about after parties. Had it twice Uh just this week. And so another challenge we face is 
supporting parents whose kids are reporting that everyone around them is doing it. And and for those parents, it starts to feel like this impossible battle. You have this great content on using facts to battle perception. And how would you encourage parents who are dealing with different-minded parents around them, allowing, you use this great example, I hear it all the time, allowing alcohol for minors in their homes and believing it is just enough to take up car keys at an after party? Yeah. The big thing for me is that, again, my kids know, they understand how the adolescent brain works, how alcohol actually behaves differently in an adolescent brain than it does in an adult brain. That I'm not talking about adults when I talk about adolescent drug and alcohol use. I'm talking about a specific phase of life in which your brain is susceptible to more damage and to delayed development than it would be if you weren't introducing all kinds of substances to it. So that baseline, that's where we're starting. There's a certain amount of giving the information and then trusting our kids to make good decisions and not from like a Pollyanna kind of place, but from a here's really good information. We know scare tactics don't work. We know just say no doesn't work. So on top of the really good information, I'm also giving kids refusal skills. The reason the word inoculation is in the title of my book is because of inoculation theory, that when we give kids ammunition, refusal skills, the mindset to understand that they have good responses to, for example, an entreaty, let's say an eighth grader is offer drugs and alcohol and they say no. And the kid says, oh, well, you know, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. But your kid at least knows that that's not true, that only 24.7% of eighth graders admit that they've had more than a sip of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. They don't have to say that, but at least they know that's inoculation theory, that they do have the self-efficacy, the ability to say at least to themselves, that that's not true. Not only are they more likely to use those refusal skills, they're actually generalizable to other high-risk behaviors. So for example, if we're helping prevent kids from taking a drink or using drugs, a lot of other high-risk behaviors are being prevented at the same time, like you know, sex before you're ready, getting in a car with a drunk driver, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So having those refusal skills is really important. Also helping kids understand this thing called pluralistic ignorance, which is We as humans have this misperception, and we'll talk about it in terms of alcohol here. We tend to believe that other people are more invested in there being alcohol around than they actually are. And we tend to overestimate how much other people drink. This is particularly acute during the college years. I talk about this in the college chapter of the book. Far fewer kids drink in college than we have been led to believe. And at Princeton, where they had a situation in which they were able to sort of test these theories out, they found that if you were to ask a college kid, how much do you care that there's going to be alcohol at this party? Your kid is going to probably say, well, I don't care that much, but everybody else is going to care a lot. And when you say, okay, and how much do you think those other people drink? Or how much do you think your roommate drinks? We will overestimate that amount. That's because of the media. That's because of all kinds of things. And what's dangerous about that is that boys in particular will tend to elevate their actual level of drinking to match a misperception about the norm. So they tend to think, okay, well, if I believe this is how much everyone around me is drinking, I have to raise my level to match that. Girls are a little less likely to do that and a little more likely to sort of withdraw from social situations, which can be bad too. So there's a lot of problems 
with the way we as humans, you know, we have some failings in our brains. From the education perspective, we're really bad at metacognition, which is knowing what we do and don't know. If we know that, then we can help exercise that in our kids a little bit. And where drugs and alcohol are concerned, it's really great to give kids actual data so that they know in their heads what's real and what's not. And then in terms of like helping kids say no, if that's not something they're interested in, I asked hundreds of adolescents to give me ideas for ways you can say no while saving face. Mm. And there's two and a half pages of the most inventive, amazing excuses for how you can say no and not look like a total dork in a social situation where you're feeling pressured. And I'm so grateful to those kids for those excuses because I could not have come up with all of those Mm, myself. And last but not least, frankly, if I found out that my kid was at a party where alcohol was offered, but the parent was like, oh, but it was all safe because I took the keys. I'm sorry, but that's a felony and you didn't have my permission. And, you know, I think at a certain point, I don't know why we felt the need to abdicate what we know is best for our kids because we're worried about ruffling other people's feathers, both with gift of failure and addiction inoculation. I'm not going to be the cool parent, and I'm really sorry, but I have really good data behind why I'm not cool. And well, that and just my God-given personality and my (laughs) love of data, I'm sorry, I'm not cool, never going to be. And that's okay with me. And, you know, on the other hand, my kids also are very, very clear on what I went through, very, very clear on what their relatives have gone through. Mm. Alcohol has ruined major holidays for our family. Mm. And we talk about the fact that it was booze and don't pretend that it was something else because that's an object lesson in how even for us, Christmas went totally down the toilet one year and caused a lot of heartache because of a relapse. So Mm. I think it's really important to talk to kids very honestly about what's going on around them. I'm glad you mentioned the college chapter. I love that that's in there. And you included some fascinating information on substance use in college, including the kinds of students more vulnerable to substance use and Princeton Review's list of party schools. (laughs) How would you encourage parents who will soon be sending kids off to college? The college chapter almost wasn't in the book because I was so positive there was no reason for the college chapter to be in the book Mm. until I started reading the data on actually how many people drink in college. And it was so much lower than I expected. And not just lower than I expected, but the statistics are are skewed. If you really look at the statistics, it is a very small slice of the college population that is drinking the vast majority of the alcohol. And if you were to come to me and give me a profile of a kid and tell me how old they are, what their financial aid status is, whether or not they're first-generation college student, what their ethnicity is, what state they're going to school in, what college they're going to, and whether or not they're really into sports, either as a player or as a spectator, and which sports. I can really pretty well predict what kind of drinker they're going to be in college, whether they're going to be a drinker at all, because it is actually quite highly predictable. It's males 18 to 24 who live off campus or in frats or are heavily involved in high contact sports, specifically hockey, wrestling, rugby, and football, or spectators of those sports. And especially kids who have a financial safety net, especially kids who know that they're probably not going to have to deal with consequences. Mm -hmm. Those kids are the ones that drink the most. And actually, we can even look at even thinner slice that it's the captains of those teams. It's the frat presidents. And they actually set the norms for what is acceptable within those organizations. 
I've gotten to do some work with U.S. Club Soccer. And I get to talk to the coaches about, you know, if you're really careful about who you select to be leaders on your team and are picking the people that are not just likely to make other players feel good about themselves, but set good norms around healthy behaviors, then you have the opportunity to influence the entire frat, the entire team, the entire house, so, you know, whatever that organization is. So not only are we pretty good at predicting who's going to be the heaviest drinkers in school, we're also pretty good at predicting who we'd have to get to in order to affect that behavior. So I'm mm-hmm. actually pretty optimistic about that. That's great. In addition to the addiction inoculation, you wrote a great book titled The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Thank you. What is something that surprised or encouraged you in researching that book? Uh, I had to have a lot of sort of humble moments because I was doing a lot that was counter to helping my kids become more competent, having them, you know, helping them feel like they could go out into the world and be competent and have self-efficacy and get things done and make the world a better place. So there were a lot of those moments where I'm like, oh, crud, I did that too. (laughs) I went into that as a teacher and as a parent. And it was actually really helpful for me in terms of learning how people learn best. I learned a lot about learning, as stuff that I hadn't gotten in professional development, which is why now I get to go and travel around and speak at schools and do professional development. Because before, for example, I was talking about metacognition and how we're just kind of bad at metacognition. Well, it turns out that the thing that really helps with metacognition is these things called formative assessments, which are low stakes, frequent assessments in school. So that ideally, if I were to give a big test, I would already know how everyone's going to do on that big test because I've been doing these low stakes formative assessments along the way. They're also formative for the kids in that they help the kids know what they do and don't know because we're pretty bad at that. They also are formative for me because they help me as a teacher know what I did a great job teaching and what I did a really bad job teaching. So they form the teaching, they form the learning. So I learned a lot about that. I learned a lot about the value of desirable difficulties as described in a book called Make It Stick. Actually, both of those concepts are described in this incredible book, Make It Stick, out of Harvard University Press. I read Carol Dweck's work really, really closely, Mm. and I learned a lot about myself and why I believed I wasn't a math person and why I still push the check over to my husband to calculate the tip. And as a result of all of that, I changed the way I teach. I changed the way I parent. I gave both my students and my kids a lot more autonomy. I went back and took Algebra 1 again with my students and my kid because I was just pissed off that I had been led to believe that I couldn't do that. And that wasn't true at all. That's awesome. I think I have much more of a growth mindset. Thank you very much, Carol Dweck. I also have an understanding of just how many learning opportunities are out there and just how often we take them away from kids. Mm. And I'm not a jerk and I'm not a massive disciplinarian and I'm not hard on my kids. I just help them see all of the possible learning opportunities. And I say things like to my students and to my kids, If I were to give you the answer here, not only would you understand it less deeply, but I would be robbing you of an opportunity to figure it out yourself. And Mm. that drives them bananas. But (laughs) 
I think, I hope that I've become a parent more oriented towards raising kids who won't need to come to me every single time they need to solve a problem. Mm. They have the ability to solve problems for themselves. What a gift. So I learned a lot about learning, helping them learn, but also I learned so much about how I learn. And that for me, selfishly, that was massive. That was huge. That's really Mm -hmm. changed the way I It's changed the way I reward myself for learning. It's changed the way I approach learning. It's been really good for me. And even watching you do that alongside them teaches them as much as allowing them to fail too. (laughs) I mean, both things. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we forget to model how we respond to mistakes in front of our kids. And Yes. yes, my kids watching me take algebra with him and we did our homework together and it was humiliating. I took guitar with my kid. Anytime you take lessons alongside your kid, you realize just how plastic their brains are, how quickly kids learn as opposed to how we learn. But it's an incredible opportunity for them to see you stick with stuff that's hard and to go to other people and ask for help when you don't know how to solve a problem that you've created. So anyway, it's a great modeling opportunity too. Yes. And in this age of anxiety, so many kids, I mean, I feel like we both sit with kids who don't want to learn. You know, they only do the things they can already do well at the outset. And so the fact that you can learn together is just doubles the impact. So thank you. That actually was a big, big finding for me with Gift of Failure was the work of Wendy Grolnick and the experiments she did around When kids have really directive or controlling parents, those kids tend to be less able to be frustrated. Mm -hmm. They're less able to sit with that feeling and be frustrated. And they're a lot more willing, a lot more likely to give up when they face something that's frustrating. Mm -hmm. Whereas the kids of parents who are autonomy supportive, who are there supportive, help redirect, but don't give them the answers, aren't highly directive or highly controlling, those kids are more likely to be able to complete difficult challenges, difficult tasks, tasks that make them a little frustrated. And as I mentioned before, desirable difficulties, that's what desirable difficulties are, tasks that are just a little bit harder to manage or parse or whatever. That's where the deepest learning happens in the short term and where the more durable learning happens in the long term. So from my perspective, I would always rather have a kid in my class who's a perfectly average intelligence, but is able to get frustrated and sort of stick with things a little bit longer than a kid who's super brilliant and gives up and freaks out the minute they can't do it right the first time. Yes. Yes. Well, okay. This is kind of a left turn, but as we're thinking about modern challenges and vintage values, we like to ask a question. We would love to know something kind of old school from when you were growing up. We want to know one of your favorite things, a show, a band, anything like that when you were a kid. Whenever anyone asks what my favorite song is, I always default to Bruce Springsteen's Thunder Road because that album was on our turntable so often. And it was just a song my dad really, really loved. And it just Mm -hmm. to me means it's a beautiful day. We're going to get outside. We're going to go do something fun. Yeah. I had great parents Mm. (laughs) I had wonderful parents. It's great. Along those lines, what is anything from your childhood that you'd like to bring back today? You know, I was just asked for a book on parenting. I was asked to ask my children what their favorite memories of my parenting were, like some good moment that they could point to in my parenting that they really appreciated. And they both said the same thing. And that was basically being kicked out of the house and being left alone outside. I grew up 
in a home where we had woods behind our house and there was a lake nearby and stuff like that. And then I very specifically sought out a similar place to raise our kids. And where we lived for the first 15 years of my older son's life, you know, Brooke behind the house, woods outside, blah, blah, blah. And so both of them talked about just basically being kicked out of the house and told to just go figure out something to do. (laughs) That resonated with me because some of my favorite memories from when I was little are just exploring the woods and, you know, being sort of left to my own devices to get bored. And, you know, I've written for The Atlantic and a couple other places about the importance of boredom, the importance of patience, the importance of creativity, and the importance of helping kids building what's called self-directed executive function, which is coming up with the tasks, not outside all the time, obviously, but figuring out something they want to do, create, make, solve, and then figuring out the short-term goals they have to do in order to make that happen. That's a skill that Kids don't get to build that often because we're constantly telling them what to do and how to do it. So for me anyway, being outside and having to figure it out and find a thing to do was for me some of the best times. Mm. So I'm glad that my kids felt the same way. Because at the time, they were like, stop it. (laughs) Just let us watch TV or stay in our room or whatever. So. Well, we have talked about these two wonderful books that you have written, which we'd love for you to say the names again so everybody gets that very clearly because we want them to all go purchase copies. And we also would love for you just to tell people where they can find and follow you and all your work. Sure. So The Gift of Failure, which is out in paperback because it came out a little while ago, was my first book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Kids Can Succeed. Mm. And then the book that just came out in paperback actually this year is The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And you can find all of that at jessicalahey.com. And in terms of social media, I tend to hang out at Twitter and Instagram the most. And that's Twitter is at Jess Leahy and Instagram is at Teacher Leahy. Thank you. And we like to end with something fun. We're great lovers of tacos around here and (laughs) would love to know what's your favorite taco, if we could enjoy one with you. You know, when it comes down to it, normally I would probably say something like chicken with a little of mole sauce on it. But, but when it comes down to it, every single time I eat fish tacos, I'm like, why don't I eat these every single day? (laughs) Fish tacos, really good fish tacos, a little cabbage and a little bit of like a a spicy sort of creamy sauce is fish tacos just can't be beat. They cannot be beat. I've asked myself that same question. Why don't I eat these every day? (laughs) Yes. Love it. Wow. Thank you so much. There's so much rich truth from this conversation. I'm excited for parents to hear. You're so welcome. And the the puppy is snoring away. So hopefully you've heard a little bit of that during this. It was icing on the cake. We just really can't thank you enough for giving us this time. It's been a gift to talk with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I just, I love having these conversations with people who have sort of a similar viewpoint on the importance of, you know, raising kids who have a sense of self-efficacy and awareness of who they are and how their brains work. We are so grateful for your voice in the world communicating that. Thank you. The Raising Boys and Girls podcast is brought to you in partnership with Minnow. Minnow helps you make screen time meaningful for your family, which shows kids love and values parents' trust. Check them out at podcast.gomino.com. That's podcast.g-o-m-i-n-n-o.com. It's our joy to bring the experience and insight we gain through our work beyond the walls of the Daystar House. Join us next time for more help and hope as you continue your journey of raising boys and girls.